I'm so thrilled to have you here for the first episode of Ancient Age. We're going to start this show with a series of sorts on the history of the Indian subcontinent, and the first episode is about the beginnings of history in India, a time where clearly so much was happening, but a time about which we know so little. This is the time of the sophisticated yet mysterious civilization that we know as the Indus Valley or the Harappans. I hope you enjoy the show, and please, please share your honest and very critical feedback with me. Eighteen fifty-six. The British have launched a railway project in modern-day Pakistan, and the engineers are looking for something sturdy to support the tracks. Luckily. they found an old abandoned site built with lots of ancient bricks that were in excellent condition now up until that point if you were to rank civilizations based on how early they emerged or the length of their history india would be somewhere in the bottom of the top 10 list maybe somewhere after carthage or along with the romans but 70 years after this railway project was over something would happen that would cause this list to be torn up you see in the 1920s this site was dated and it turned out that those bricks were 4500 years old 4500 years takes us to 2500 bc which is the time of babylon and sumeria and ancient egypt you can't go back much further than that that is the beginning of recorded history immediately you have to bump up india to somewhere near the very top of that list of ancient civilizations to just give you some perspective of how this this changed everything remember our earlier list placed the romans and the indians together well our updated list is so different and it turns out that julius caesar is actually closer to our time today than to the founding of harappa and when i was reading about all of this there was something that struck out for me and that was that how in the world did the modern day subcontinent with the roads that are broken up every monsoon and buildings that leak after the rain and where infrastructure is notoriously bad and adulteration is a part of everyday life how in the world did that place once build such good infrastructure that its bricks could be used 4500 years later and this quality infrastructure is not just noticed in this location but in many many other sites since found all which we now know as a part of the indus valley civilization now if you wanted to make a tv show or a movie the contemporaries of the indian indus valley in egypt or in the area around iran iraq would make absolutely fantastic subjects after all this is about the time that the pyramids are being built in egypt in assyria about 200 years later you would have one of the greatest and legendary rulers of all of history perhaps the founder of the assyrians sargon the great and by the way if you look throughout 5000 years of history you probably couldn't get better subject matter for your tv show than the assyrians the assyrians probably make every modern day dictator look lenient and just to give you an example about how colorful they are i'm just going to read out an inscription that was found in an ancient temple written by probably the most famous assyrian king ashurbanipal 
and he's writing about what he did to crush a rebellion. I built a pit pillar at the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had reported. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on sticks. That sounds like a scene out of Game of Thrones, doesn't it? And as far as we can tell, the Indus Valley had none of this. Their most celebrated monument, the Great Bath in Mohanjodaro, it is well interesting, but quite frankly, it doesn't hold a candle up to the pyramids or what we think the hanging gardens in Babylon used to look like. There is no clear evidence of them having any armies or great battles. So if you ask a Hollywood production house, they might pass over the chance to make a TV show on the Indus Valley. But good TV doesn't necessarily mean a good life for normal people, does it? As a matter of fact, if you give me three options to go back in time to 2500 BC and live in one of these three civilizations, I would pick the Harappans. And it's not because of some patriotic reason. Here's one reason. How about something as banal as urban planning and infrastructure? which the Harappans were absolutely fantastic at. Let me quote historian Andrew Robinson, who has a good summary of this. The Indus city's drainage and sanitation were two millennia ahead of those of the Roman Empire. Besides the Great Bath, they included magnificent circular wells, elaborate drains running beneath corbelled arches, and the world's first toilets. The city's well-planned streets, generally laid out in the cardinal directions, put to shame all but the town planning of the 20th century. So there were a lot of incredible things about the town planning of the Indus Valley. But what really stands out is the drainage and the sanitation. I've heard several historians and people say that the sewage system in those times, 4,500 years earlier, is actually better than parts of modern-day India and Pakistan today. And those weren't small cities by the standards of those times. Some of those cities, particularly Harappa and Mohanjodaro, were as large as any city in the world at this point. Of course, population-wise, that's the equivalent of a small town in modern-day India or Pakistan. So let's not really get too carried away. But there's no doubt that the Harappans had developed a special civilization skill of sorts. And whatever skill allowed the Harappans to build these cities build these fantastic drainage systems and this well-organized streets and towns, this shows up in other aspects of the civilization as well, all of which is fantastically well-organized and efficient. It is kind of like the modern-day Germany or Japan. For example, the Harappans probably had the most sophisticated supply chain and trade network of its time, which is all the more incredible because it was by far the biggest civilization, geographically speaking. Its cities were hundreds of kilometers apart. The other contemporary civilizations, Mesopotamian Egypt, were very urban and dense civilizations, you know, with cities located maybe 20 to 60 kilometers apart. On the other hand, in the Indus Valley, these cities were hundreds of kilometers apart. And despite those distances and the challenges that that would bring, you see things like specialist craft towns whose goods would be found all over the rest of the Indus and even up till Mesopotamia, which tells us that the Harappans were probably the greatest international traders at that point. They certainly had all the systems that the trade required. For example, there's a standardized systems of weights and measures which is followed everywhere. Now, opinions about ancient civilizations have taken a U-turn in the past. I mean, they thought the Mayans were very peaceful and spiritually inclined people until they decoded the script and found that they couldn't have been more wrong about them. That could happen here. 
we actually have no idea how to read the indus valley script and in fact some historians argue that it's not a script at all but just a set of religious symbols which really downgrades how sophisticated we think the civilization is but apart from that we honestly know so little about the harappans that taking a u turn isn't really a problem you see this part of indian history is like solving a large puzzle with many big pieces but in the dark the puzzle pieces are the archaeological stuff and the light is the written account and in history you kind of need one to interpret and support the other because writing is often biased and unreliable or colored by a religion which will of course happen with india for much of its history archaeological evidence see a piece of our pottery or maybe a particular building on the other hand could have been used differently by different societies so you kind of need the cultural context to understand it but the problem is that in the indus valley we have no writing to help interpret the puzzles and so everybody looks at the archaeological evidence and draws their own conclusion with their own biases this is why i think of the harappan civilization as a bit like the rorschach tests you know those little plots of ink figures on paper that you are shown and then psychologists ask you what do you think it means and some people see different shapes in this figure and somebody sees an animal somebody sees people dancing and stuff and then psychologists kind of use that to determine your biases and your psychological condition that's a bit like the harappan civilization because you really have limited evidence that doesn't prove anything and in order to complete the picture historians use their own interpretations for example the archaeologist sir mortimer wheeler thought this great order and structure within harappa indicated that there was a strong centralized and authoritarian government who ruled over this land now is it any surprise that his formative years in archaeology were spent studying the civilization who forms a very prototype the archetype for this kind of strong centralized and authoritarian government i'm talking of course about the roman civilization and sir mortimer wheeler grew up studying the romans it should be no surprise to anybody that the patterns that jump out of him from the indus valley are the same patterns that he saw in the romans but these interpretations differ widely here's a more modern day historian gregory bozel and gregory bozel actually says that he senses in the indus people a marked distrust in government per se especially strong centralized government he actually thought that these people were ruled by councils or gatherings of leaders now the problem with both of these statements is that there is actually no conclusive evidence for any of them this is speculation you could equally make the case that these people were ruled by say a theocracy or that it was the world's first democracy this evidence is like the rorschach ink plot and these people are not ideologues who can't help but interpret the evidence to suit their biases they are good historians and they're left to conjecture and analogy because that's the best they can do with all the evidence that's available to them to make matters even more mysterious this ancient world's rorschach test then turns into a historical crime scene for this large and sophisticated civilization this germany of the ancient world disappears in about 1700 bce it disappears so completely that it will never be spoken about again until a criminal from the british army stumbled upon it think about that for a second all of that great literature and art and scientific discoveries and empires and sense of history and we in india never even knew that this civilization existed until the british told us about it 
It's shocking, isn't it? Now, of course, there are some who dispute that because there is this whole other theory going on about India's history that we will talk on about a little bit. But before we do that, I want to just talk about what this collapse meant. You see, everything from the causes of the collapse to the next thousand or so years of Indian history are so controversial and so evocative these days and politically sensitive as well that I don't think we think enough about what the collapse of the Harappan civilization meant. Because if you're a modern-day Indian and you hear all this stuff about the Harappans, about their organization and their efficiency and their town planning and their infrastructure, then you have to wonder where the heck did all of that go? How did we get from that to modern-day India and Pakistan with its chaotic cities, with roads that need to be rebuilt every year, with the buildings that show signs of seepage every monsoon? I mean, what the hell happened? And this fall has been so steep. You see, Indians would go on to do a lot of wonderful things in their history, in all spheres, in science and technology, in art, in culture, in the economy. But we would never ever have that political unity and the ability to build institutions like the Harappans seem to have. And what wouldn't modern day Indians give to be able to build world class infrastructure and world class institutions like the Harappans? Economically, that might be one of the biggest things holding us back in an age where the economy seems to dominate everything. One can't help but wonder how history would have been different if the Harappan civilization hadn't collapsed. Or if some of this knowledge or systems that they had possessed hadn't been so utterly forgotten. This difference is incredible. Whatever secret skills that the Harappans had, it seems it died with them. And these secrets are now lost forever. I should point out that this mass amnesia, if you think of it that way, is not really that unusual. I mean, there's this great story that Dan Carlin has mentioned in quite a few of his podcasts. And that's a good example. The, the story goes that about 1200 years later from the time we are in, in this story, in around 400 BC, the Greek writer and soldier Xenophon is fleeing the Persians in what is now modern day Iraq. Now, one night he comes upon the ruins of what was clearly a grand city. So he asks a few locals, what city was that? Who built it? The locals tell them that the Medes built it. Now, this city that Xenophon was asking about, we know that this city was actually Nineveh. And it was, just 200 years ago, the capital of the greatest empire of its age, the Assyrians. Remember, we have just talked about how the Assyrians are as memorable and as colourful as you can get. I mean, it was probably a part of their policy to make sure that their tales of slaughter and brutalities would be recorded in history to serve as a lesson and a warning to everyone that this is what happens if you mess with us. Some of their punishments included pulling out the tongues of their prisoners before flaying them alive and having people trying their father's bones before having them executed in front of a jeering crowd. And then they would go ahead and paint these scenes in the walls of their palaces and their temples and record them in their biographies. In fact, you can go and see these scenes even today. But for all their efforts, for all their brutality, for all their colour, the Assyrians were forgotten by the people. In a mere 200 years, the blink of a historical eye. Of course, Nineveh and Assyria were not lost to history. Because we have both the records of the Assyrian Empire and their neighbours, which included one of the most fastidious note-makers in all of history, the Babylonians. 
But in order for Nineveh to be remembered, it needed writing and institutions nearby that preserved these records. If Nineveh had entrusted its memory to the people, almost none of whom were literate, well, they would have been gone from history too, just as the locals had forgotten about Nineveh. So, having said that now, let's come back to the crime scene. Now, the first natural reaction of human when someone disappears is, of course, to suspect murder. And this is where you add to the mix as a suspect the most controversial people in all of history, the Indo-Europeans. You might have heard of them as the Aryans. Now, this is an incredibly hard subject to talk about because not only is the evidence iffy, but you also have lots and lots of historical and cultural baggage. And it starts from the 19th century, when a famous scholar talks about a set of people. They seem to have settled in India and Greece and Rome. And by the way, pretty much all the major languages and cultures in the world come from these people. Of course, everybody starts thinking of these Aryans from Central Asia as this master race. Everybody begins laying claim to them finding connections with them. This theory is then twisted and turned until it becomes the springboard for one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century, perhaps of all time. I'm quite sure Max Muller would have been horrified to see what Hitler did with his ideas. Hitler, of course, used this myth of the pure Aryan race as justification for the Holocaust. So yeah, this theory has some baggage. And this is just from Europe. Now, despite what became of the idea, This theory itself was actually quite scientifically sound. You see, we had discovered that Sanskrit and other Vedic languages in India had incredible structural parallels with Latin and Greek and Germanic languages, which indicated that these were all a family of languages with a common origin. We now call these the Indo-European languages. And most of the major languages in the world fit in this category. In addition to this, we also have a lot of incredible parallels between mythologies and religions from different places. For example, some of the words in the holy book of the ancient Zoroastrian people refers to demons as devas, which is the Sanskrit word for gods. Their supreme deity is Ahura Mazda and there's mention of a land called Hapta Hindu. Now, Ahura Mazda is said to be linguistically equivalent to the Sanskrit word Asur or demons and Hapta Hindu to Sapta Sindhu, the land of the seven rivers, which is India. It's really hard to dismiss these connections once you think about them. But despite all that, nobody really thinks that the end of the Harappans came because of the Aryan invasion. One of the reasons for that is because historians didn't find any large-scale destruction of buildings or cities that should accompany such a violent incident. After all, I mean, these were thriving major cities, so they should have left some evidence if a major collapse happened. There is no trauma on skeletons. There is no significant amount of arrowheads or any other evidence that is generally found in this case. Today, the generally accepted reason is thought to be climate change along with the change in the course of rivers. And by the way, the Indian rivers are famous for changing course. And it's not hard to see why these changes would have been devastating. Because if they reduced agricultural productivity, then all of a sudden it gets really hard to sustain these large urban centers Full of specialists, you know, you had bureaucrats and blacksmiths and scribes. And then historians also found that a lot of these cities had falling standards for the past two, three hundred years. 
For example, some of the later constructions weren't as exact and well-planned as earlier. In fact, in one particular street, they even found bodies that were unburied. All this seems to indicate that the institutions that had run this sophisticated and wonderful civilization for so many hundreds of years were probably decaying and stagnating. That isn't a surprise. I mean, all institutions decay and stagnate, don't they? Maybe this death of the Harappan civilization was caused by, what do they call it, natural causes? After all, civilizations die out all the time. About half a millennia later, you would have that famous Bronze Age collapse in the Mediterranean world. That killed several civilizations and we certainly have no idea of what happened there. So the mainstream theory here is that after the collapse of the Harappan civilization, the people who lived here reverted mostly to a rural existence, although some settlements would carry on for about 500 years, much reduced of course. And in this vacuum is where the Aryans, or the Yamnaya people as they are called today, come in. Now remember, these are nomadic cow herders who live in tribes. It's really hard to imagine them being any more than a nuisance to the Harappan civilization if they had come earlier. After all, Harappa was a wonderfully organized civilization with walls around its cities and other defenses. And the Yamnaya people are said to have trickled in, in a few handful of numbers. But as I said, there's a vacuum in India right now. And in this vacuum come charging in these nomadic cow herders on horseback. Most historians believe that the Yamnaya people kind of like it here. So they settle. And these people, over three and a half millennia, create Hindu culture. Of course, with some input from the locals. But mostly, Hindu culture is attributed to these newcomers. And people from India aren't necessarily the biggest fans of this theory. And that shouldn't be too hard to understand. After all, the last thousand years or so haven't gone very well for India, have they? I mean, we've been conquered and colonized and exploited. And now we are poor and have all of these issues. But hey, we have this wonderful history of ours, don't we? We've been told how rich we once were and how our cultural achievements were incredible. So that's something that stiffens our back. But now you're telling us that all of these achievements actually come from people who sound a lot like white people? You can certainly understand a bit of resistance to that idea, can't you? Of course, this is also the time where India is seeing itself as one of the big boys on the world stage, ready to flex its muscles and assert themselves. And it is also, of course, the time of the Hindutva movement. Hindu pride is at an all-time high. You see, history is not one-sided, but two-sided. Because history is not what really happened, but it's what we think happened. Of course, what we think is influenced by the cultural context. And sometimes, the cultural context is so strong that it can even change history. History is a fable agreed upon, right? And there are many, many, many people in India who don't believe in the mainstream academic version. But I'm quite hopeful that DNA evidence will soon completely sew up this debate without a shadow of doubt one of these days. So to recap the story, the Yamnaya people from the Eurasian steppe start migrating slowly across the world. One group goes west, another group goes east. They come to Central Asia and have a further division, possibly because of religious reasons. One group goes to Iran, the other one comes to India through the Hindu Kush mountains. That's not the last time a group of people will come from the Hindu Kush mountains. So now, the obvious question is, what happened when they met the people who were already there? The evidence, for the most part, points quite strongly to the fact 
that the people of the Indus Valley are the ancestors of the Dravidians of South India. And that when these Yamnaya people arrived, there was some merging but mostly displacement to the South. This is not just DNA evidence but also cultural evidence. There's a terrific book that just came out as I was releasing this podcast. It's called Journey of a Civilization, Indus to Vukai. That book documents all of this cultural evidence very painstakingly and I highly recommend that book for anybody who's interested. But back to the main topic here. When we talk about this displacement, there's an undercurrent of violence in that idea, isn't it? I mean, historians are very careful to say this was not an invasion but a quote-unquote migration. But if you're speaking of these newcomers, then you really have to understand how does their language and culture come to dominate the country. And then you find two uncomfortable pieces of DNA evidence. One of them is the fact that the mitochondrial DNA in India, which is basically the DNA you inherit from your mother, this mitochondrial DNA has been here for over tens and thousands of years. It shows very little evidence of foreign migration. So what does it mean? When there is significant foreign influence in overall DNA, but very little in the DNA that you get from your mother, it means that for some reason, at about the time that the Yamnaya people came in, the people of the Indus Valley clan, who we can very roughly think as the South Indians, had a very significant fall in their mating fortunes. Now, that's a politically explosive statement, isn't it? You see, the North and the South of India don't always see eye to eye. And of course, there's no way to be sure about this, but I strongly doubt that this was the ancient world's version of the axe effect that hordes of women of the Indus Valley just ran into the arms of the dashing newcomers. I mean, if you apply the Occam's razor approach to history, it points to a more sinister reality. And what's more, you see the same pattern in other areas that the Yamnaya people migrated to. Everywhere it seems that they killed many of the men in the society and married the women. On top of that, you have evidence showing that the higher caste males, especially from north of India, show a higher DNA from the steppe. Now, of course, modern India has a separate political movement around the emancipation of lower costs. So, there is another political hot potato. But it's also important to not go too far down this road. Remember, we don't have any clear evidence for this. And even if there were clashes, these would have been on a very small and local level. There is also good evidence that points to at least some levels of cultural continuity between the Indus Valley and the people who would become Hindus. So talking about Hinduism and Indus Valley is a great segue for the next part of our program. You see, the next part of Indian history is a transition point. It's as if the people of India are catching a train from one station to another. And when they get off this train... Somewhere around 1000 BC, everything has changed. What we think of as Hindu culture has begun. And we have no idea how the heck that happened. There is no archaeological evidence or historical accounts that talk about this period in detail. You know, the writer J.K. Rowling said that the idea for Harry Potter came into her head fully formed during a train ride. And it's almost as if that's what happened with Indian culture. Because this entire train journey takes place in the dark. Except for one thing. You see, when the people got off from this train, they were carrying one of the most amazing artifacts in all of history. They were carrying a few books, perhaps four of them. 
wonderfully poetic, incredibly mysterious, and perhaps with unparalleled influence in history. I am talking, of course, about the Vedas or the Vedas as Indians call them. In the next episode, we will talk a little bit about the Vedas, about what we think happened during this momentous train ride, and a little bit about geography, as the story of Indian culture or Hindu culture well and truly begins. Hi guys, I really hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I'm going to be releasing transcripts and sharing some of the sources I used. It will be mentioned on a link in the show notes. Please, please give me your feedback. You can email me at fatehsman at the rate of gmail.com. That is F-A-T-E-H-S-M-A-N-N at gmail.com. You can also reach me at Twitter at fatehsman. And if you want to catch up with the rest of my content, you can go to my website, fatehman.com, F-A-T-E-H-M-A-N-N. And uh, it's going to be there soon, hopefully. The next episode should be out in a week or two after the release of this. And if you enjoyed this, just leave, leave a comment or share it with a friend of yours, maybe rate it. I have no marketing money to spend on this. This is entirely a labor of love. So that would be a lot of help, right? Okay, thank you for listening. See you for the next one.